I was that paranoid I had to go to the back because I thought everyone was talking about this. <laughs> so I managed to just finish the run just in time and um, when when everyone fell in to march away, I was knackered lying on the floor and they all turned into the band of uh, Dumbo. I'm Sonia Morton Firth and you're tuned in to the Sonia Morton Firth Show. Today my guest is Jer Fowler army veteran and CEO of multi-award winning Veterans in Crisis. With a desire to help others, Jer launched Veterans in Crisis. Join us as we discuss Jer's time in the army and the community he has created to help veterans. I believe health is the greatest form of wealth we have, which is why I'm so excited to be partnered with Brother in Arms. Brother in Arms is a wellness brand dedicated to working with veterans, first responders and anyone on the front line. Through their education, support and premium CBD products, they help alleviate and restore the lives of those that have been affected by physical and mental trauma. Learn about the life-changing benefits and power of CBD. Join their community today. Hit the link below. Jer, thank you so much for being a guest in my home today. It's wonderful to get you here. You've come all the way from Sunderland. I know, I thought you were going to see you last summer. Well, it's taken us a bit of a while to get you on my um, show because I had to get over the fact that you were from Sunderland. I thought, I'm just going to have to bury everything and just, uh, you know. I think you said it was because of COVID, so now you can, <laughs> you can just give it up now, haven't you? Completely, Joe's decided it is wonderful to have you here. I am just wondering, where did you get your name from? Uh, now, I've, I've been putting how to pronounce it, because I bet a few people call you Gur. Yeah, they do, but idiots call us Gur. Politicians call us Gur. It comes from Jared, but only my mum and priests call us that. And I'm assuming you're neither. I'm definitely not your mum, but oh. you never know, I might have a little <laughs> collar coming out sooner or later. <laughs> Just for my audience, can you tell me a little bit more about who you are and what you do now before yeah. getting on to your... So, story? my name is Joe Fowler and I'm the founder and the CEO of Veterans in Crisis Sunderland. Wonderful. And I want to talk more about Veterans in Crisis, but before we do, I want to talk about um, your story and your time in the army. Can you take us back yeah, um, so I grew up, I always wanted to join the army after seeing the Iranian embassy uh, because of the end of the days you didn't have Sky or anything so Rolling News wasn't a thing so when you saw that live on TV I just thought oh, that's definitely me like I mean I never got in the SAS like, so it wasn't me <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's, uh, I put my mind to that um, all the way through my childhood and the Falklands War um, so as soon as I was 16 I joined the junior leaders of the Light Infantry and where were you stationed? I or was where did you stationed stay? in Winchester for nearly a year to do my training because junior leaders do like extra training. Uh, and then I got posted to the 1st Battalion of Light Infantry who were in Omar in Northern Ireland. Now, back in the day, because some of our viewers might re not realise that we even were, where there was war with Northern Ireland, yeah. but I remember those days and I remember London being blown up regularly yeah. on the news um, and the IRA were a real threat. Can you tell us what it was like back then? Well, um, I mean, I don't know if I'm the same age as you, but I grew up with that happening, uh, people getting shot when there were train stations, uh, pubs getting blown up, 
You know, so like, mm. all I wanted to do was join the army and go to Northern Ireland. So when I'd finished my training, the first battalion with it in Northern Ireland, no other battalion were there. So that's why I picked that one to go. Um, I left training at 17 and the army sent us straight away. And I was there for about a month and then they realised I was too young. So that sent us home. She's supposed to be 17 and a half. What did you do well, <laughs> when they sent you home? To be, to be honest, so the day the centres, um, I got a flight from Newcastle at 7 o'clock in the morning, landed in Belfast at 8 in the morning, and they didn't pick us up till midnight. So at 17 year old, I just thought everyone was a terrorist in the airport. And it was just horrendous, to be quite honest. But, I mean, you get through things. And then once I got to camp, you join a thing called junior um, under-18 platoon because you're under 18, obviously, but you're supposed to be 17 and a half. Uh, you just stay on camp, you do like duties on camp. And then they must have seen some notes and realised I was too young. So they sent us home for a couple of weeks and then they sent us to the 3rd Battalion uh, who were going on exercise in Germany. So I went with them and then came back when I was 17 and a half. And what happened when you, when you were actually the age you were well, meant to well, join? Well, when I was... 17 and a half, when I went back, you stay in the under 18 platoon. In that time, I went to the Falklands. I volunteered to go to the Falklands for a bit. You just do a lot of training. And then I got posted to A Company. Um, who were, My first person was on the border. So you, you basically just check cars going from north and south. Um, and then you just do like a, a rotation of different jobs. And what was the worst thing that you saw when you were out there? Or you, you the worst experience? thing? Mm. There was a lot of Newcastle tops. <laughs> <laughs> Will we open that then? <laughs> no, I mean obviously obviously what had happened to us was um I was in a company, uh we'd we were gonna go down South Armand dig trenches, so we got a couple of days leave. On the way back, uh the bus we were on got blew up. Luckily I just got off. Uh, me and six other people to, to go in a transit van with all the bags, but the bus got blew up and eight how people. Come, sorry, how come you got off? Because bus? there's two airports, so we got we landed at one airport, drove to the next airport, then there wasn't enough seats on the bus, and they needed six people to get in a transit van with the bags, so six of us luckily got on that and then went in front of the bus. So that was fate, really. You should have yeah, been, in yeah, theory, yeah, on yeah, that yeah. bus. Do you ever... Look back and think. I, I, I struggled with it for years with survivors' guilt, um, people who died, and you know, it's horrible. Well, yeah, do you have friends there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, there was eight lads. We were all the lads who died were all under twenty-one. I was eighteen at the time. My friends were all eighteen, um, so uh, it was shocking. Did you have any? Because oh, you're fairly young to go through that. Yeah. Did you have any sort of help from the no, 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 sort no. of psychological help, no. or they didn't? No, they just tell you to put your belly on and go back to work. I mean, this happened at midnight on Friday. Saturday, I had to go to a room to tell you who was dead. Saturday afternoon, I uh, packed the guy in the bed opposite to me's box who was dead. Saturday tea time, I went to the hospital to visit the people who were injured. And six o'clock Sunday morning, I went into South Carolina, deep trenches, and stay in a trench for four weeks. And so nothing was said of it, it was just... Nothing at all. Not one thing. It was never ever spoke about. I've got a friend who I joined the army with, and um, me and him still never talk about it. And we go on holiday together, and we're 51 now, and this happened when we were 18, and we never ever speak about really? it. Really? Yeah. Why? How come you don't talk about it with your mates? No idea. No idea. Do you, do you know, Just, is he suffer, has he suffered? He's, he hasn't suffered um, as much as me outwardly, mm. but I suspect he has inwardly. 
but we never we never talk. But to be honest, when I when I get to see him, um, I like it to be happy stuff. So I don't really want to talk about it. You know, and it's just because it's so long ago, we've got to a stage where we don't really want to bring it up. And you've never sort of had a drink with it. I'm just putting this sort of thought out. You know, I've had a drink with him and said, "Do you remember that day? Or do you remember back when?" It's no. Just like, no, I had a drink with him on Remembrance Day. And like we were, we were remembering, remembering, but we didn't speak about, about it. it. No. So when did you realise it, it affected you, or did it affect you? Well, I, so I was 18 at the time, but this was 1988. Um, ecstasy had just come out. So I was 18, and I got into that sort of thing. So I would never blame what happened on that, because it would have probably happened anyway, me eating ecstasy. Uh, so I got sort of into the rave scene. So you were still in the army. Yeah, yeah. And I then the I was still in Northern Ireland. Then I went to I went to Ibiza twice in nineteen eighty eight, and that just changed my life. So I just sort of lived for that, to be honest. How does I guess when I think about the rave scene and ecstasy, and you know, I was very, it was when I was young as well. I can't really see how the military sort of fit into that. Um, did it fit? Not really, it no, because really you, <laughs> you can't really have an infantry soldier who wants to cuddle everybody all the time. No, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> no it didn't I fit. I love I mean, you, mate. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when we were in Ireland, it was just a thing that like you did when you were on leave and when we went to Ibiza um, or Benidorm, wherever we went. But um, when we went to Berlin after Ireland, Berlin's obviously the party city, so yeah. it was more or less every weekend we would be doing it. But it w- there would be like a... The army would t- wouldn't tell you this, but there would be probably like fifty of us out of the battalion doing it. Could you imagine the net if you, if you were suddenly had to go into war and you're hugging the oh, enemy? Exactly, on the... <laughs> flowers in the end of old rifles. Yes, love it. Right. I mean, to me though, ecstasy changed lots of things because not only did it make us feel better, but at the time I was drinking really heavily and only being small, I was drinking like far too much, and I was being sick all the time. So when I discovered drugs, you, I was never sick. You know, that was a completely different kind of thing. I felt better the next day. I was better. Um, I mean, I'll tell you a story if you want. One time I took acid. I went to see uh, the Happy Mondays. And the next morning I had to go on a, a BFT, a run. And um, I was that paranoid I had to go to the back because I thought everyone was talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> so I managed to just finish the run just in time and... Um, when when everyone fell in and marched away, I was knackered lying on the floor, and they all turned into the band of uh, Dumbo. <laughs> with so big, you were seeing this. Yeah, you were seeing Dumbo. Big, yeah, with the big uh, things clapping and that, and the and the sergeant major was shouting at us to get up, get up. What's the matter with you? And I, all I could see was just these people, these elephants walking away. <laughs> so, Joe, what what made you leave the military? I think that's <laughs> well, a good point. To, to be honest, I had, Dumbo. I, I had to make a decision. Did I want to stay in the army or did I want to enjoy going to raves? So I, I wanted to go to raves more. I enjoyed that, you know. I, I'd, I'd been in the army for since I was 16. I hadn't really had it much of a childhood because my parents were quite strict Catholics. Uh, and, I, you know, I just, this was like free and it was, it was really good. Okay, so what, when you got back to, did you go straight back to Sunderland? I did, yeah. yeah. Well, back to Sunderland, I didn't have any sort of, I didn't think of anything. When I'd been in the army, I'd been glassed in a fight and uh, I ended up uh, getting some compensation. So I thought I'd just live off that for a bit and go to raves and enjoy myself. And I just fell into that kind of lifestyle. And did it, did any point the sort of the drugs were obviously must have caught up with you? To be honest, the, the, after about two years of doing it more or less every, every weekend, uh, 
let the novelty wears off. So I just calmed down and didn't do it anymore. I was smoking weed all the time. Uh, but I had a, a, a lad who joined the army and he was my best friend lived around the corner and we've done all this together since we were 16. And uh, he killed himself and I didn't know why he killed himself. He didn't tell us he was going to do it, anything like that. To this day, do you no, know why? No, no idea. And, and then... like that, that played on my mind, so I, I'd sort of survivor's guilt about that and I, I felt like a bit guilty that he couldn't fit, sort of reach out to us, if that makes sense. Yeah. He didn't reach out to anyone and, it, and no one knows why it happened. So I went to the doctors about that because I was feeling really depressed and that. I wasn't taking ecstasy then and um, the doctor sort of gave us a psychiatric nurse and then a psychiatrist and stuff like that. And then what it came down to was sort of the trapped feelings from what had happened in Northern Ireland. That's what the diagnosis of PTSD. So how many years after, or how long after Ireland so, so was that? When the I'd left Ireland in 89 and I got diagnosed in 94. With PTSD, yeah. and it had gone back to this this event, this I guess. Event, I'd be, and they, they put it down to it not being spoken about, and never never actually talking to anybody about it. But I mean, talking to people about it, I'm quite easy talking about it now. Uh, but I'd, I, to be honest, I don't really want to talk about it to any mental health professional. It's the mental health professionals I had then, and I assume it's different now. Um, but I mean, I had a, a young, a young sort of psychiatrist. I think it's. 22 or 23 and all he was saying to us was I know exactly how you feel and I was just like well I'm sure you don't you know so I didn't really none of it really worked so so that was what they gave so in terms of trying to help you recover yeah. from the PTSD you were put in front of 22 year old yeah. um, counsellors yeah and it was, it was rubbish to be honest. is there anything else that sort of prescribed to you or? I, well I, I was taking antidepressants which I didn't really like uh, but I, I, I sort of were you learnt... taking the antidepressants and the ecstasy or no, was no, the... No. <laughs> the the ecstasy was an antidepressant <laughs> I was going to say <laughs> <laughs> no no I'd stopped taking ecstasy then uh, all I was doing then uh, illegal drugs was um, more or less smoking weed all the time um, I ended up you know Quite depressed, quite depressed. But then, can I tell you? Well, it isn't funny, like, but it is to me. So, one of the one of the recommendations of us being depressed was to get a dog. Gets a dog about a year down the line. I'm um, got the dog out on the park, and there are two dogs attack us, and I need to get killed. So, because you were they'd gone for your dog, yeah, had you, yeah. and you'd like tried yeah, to pull your dog. Yeah. So I ended up with twenty eight stitches in my arm, eight in my leg. I had 34 puncture wounds, I had three discs out my back. Oh my God. So, it is I'm, quite a funny I'm, story, I'm, I'm isn't trying it? not to laugh because it isn't, it you know, is. obviously it's a I can see the irony in it. Yeah, you know, I can yeah. see the irony in it. And the good thing about it... Did you keep your dog? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's just had a bit of a scar. I mean, he's dead now, like, I've got yeah. a different dog now. But uh, I would see the irony in it, but what I did when I got out of the hospital is I went straight on the park where it happened with my crutches and all bandaged and stuff, just so then I didn't sort of put that at the back like I had with all my other feelings. I wanted to stand and think, right, well, you know, I've done it now, so I can just come back to the park with so the dog. facing it from yeah, the yeah. face on. And that, that, that was a good thing. So the stuff I'd learnt how to cope with PTSD made us not have PTSD from the dog attack. I mean, I've never had a, I've never had a, a thing. I, I, I was really scared of dogs. I'm not as bad now. But I'm obviously not going to put my hand anywhere near anyone. No, I can imagine you being quite wary about that. And was that, do you think, was that your turning point? To... No, no, God, I've had loads of different things happen to us then. Uh, that was, that was sort of, I ended up then really depressed because of the physical injuries I had. 
So I was telling the dog yeah, the, I was telling him I had to learn how to eat, be able to uh, use my hand again because of the took like a bit out. Sorry, going back to the dog incident, how were you found? Was what uh, about the look, owner of the two dogs? So the owner was a woman who had the two dogs. They were Neapolitan Mastiffs, which were quite big, and she just had them, had them off the lead. It was all I got picture the scene, so it was all snow. Right, I'd been out all night before drinking and smoking weed, and um, I thought I'd take the dog out, and then this happened and luckily some um guys who were cleaning the windows on the ladders seeing what was happening they ran into the park with the ladders like long and they hit them the dogs ran away and then they chased the blokes on the ladders with the ladders <laughs> and then i stopped they told me to run and then as i was running then everything was sideways so i must have collapsed and then one dog had me hood and one dog had me tracks of arms which was I don't know if you've ever been told, make sure you've got underpants on, just in case I've you get knocked over. I've never been told Just in case you get knocked over. Yes, when you're a kid. make sure you've got a yes. nice pair of knickers yes. on. Sorry. Yes. Yes. Well, make sure you do it if you've got to get attacked off dogs, because I didn't, and they were pulling me tracks at the bottoms down. So I had bites on all me. But... Oh, gosh, bless you. And, uh, oh, don't you go down the dogs, but I guess the dogs were put down. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. And the woman had gone to court and stuff like that. But then I so kind of suffered... The physical side of that, um, back problems, I've had operations on my back. One disc totally went and then a bone had grew over the top because we waited so long about that. that cut off, you know. So look, I've had loads of bad parts because of that. But because of that, I became addicted to strong painkillers like Tramadol, Dialdecodine, Diazepam, or Oromorph. Wow, so you've just got, you've got off the X, you yeah. stopped, stopped partying, ecstasy, mm. um, and you've then gone on to painkillers, yeah. these strong painkillers yeah, yeah, yeah. that I know you can get very addicted to. Yeah, it's unbelievable because I never, I wasn't addicted to the other drugs that I sort of liked, but then I became addicted to this. And I didn't even realise I was addicted, but I was taking something like 30, I think it was a day, of these really strong painkillers and drinking Oromorph at the same time. Uh, but then I was smoking weed as well and I was drinking alcohol and then... That's a concoction yeah. for a disaster. Yeah, but then I was so out of it because they were all downers, I was getting cocaine and taking cocaine, so I was awake. Yeah. So, I mean, life was a total mess. So, Joe, you were taking all of these painkillers, you were smoking weed. At what point did, did you at What point did you turn yourself around? Because you can't, have, it can't be... Um, it was... I sort of fell out with some people in Sunderland and uh, they grassed us to the police, so my house got raided. It'll be 12 years on New Year's Eve. Um, and my house had been raided before because I'd been in trouble at football. Uh, and I didn't really care, you know. I, before I didn't have any sort of consequence for anything that happened to us. I could have been killed. I could have went to jail. I didn't really care. But now I had a daughter, so when my house got raided, I think she was four. Um, that was just a wake up call. And I just thought that's never happening again. I'm not putting her through this. You know, there, there isn't any point in me bringing a daughter into the world and then getting the house raided and stuff yeah, like that. So I just thought it's not happening again. Like so. 12 years, I've, uh, I give up everything on that day. I give up smoking weed, drinking alcohol and all the painkillers. So you just went totally cold turkey? There was no sort of plan of doing no, this slowly? No. It's just like, no. bam, let's do well, it all. The plan was the police had took me weed, so I didn't have any weed anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I just thought, you know, the only way my life will change is if I change it. Nobody else is going to do it. So on that day, I just said, right, when I got out, I think I got out about... 11 o'clock, and I've never ever made like a New Year's resolution before. And I just said, right, and I'll just not do it. And like, my father's thinking, nah, it's bullshit. You know, but I just did it. 
And they say you don't stick to New Year's resolutions. Well, there's one that you're stuck to. And so how did you go from that to, we've got to talk about veterans in crisis, how yeah. that started. You're wearing such a lovely T-shirt oh, today, is that? So uh, veterans in crisis came out of a, a, a sort of another bad experience. So I'd sorted myself out. I had a beauty with my niece. Everything was going well. And one day I was in my parents' house and my dad died and I gave him CPR. And it didn't work. He, he was dead. The paramedic said he was dead anyway. Uh, but that made us feel really guilty. Brought some, back some really horrible thoughts. Uh, Why did you feel guilty? Because he, he, when you watch it on the telly, everyone always comes alive. And he didn't come yeah, alive. That's just the Hollywood. It is, I but you know, it, it just, I felt I should have brought him around. But the paramedic said he was already dead. I mm-hmm. pulled uh, I sick out of his mouth, give him mouth to mouth and everything. And it just, it didn't work anyway. So from that day, I said, right, well, I'm just going to get a job where I help people. So I just went and uh, worked for free at a homeless charity. So I just paid my own wages for 10 months and worked 40 hour weeks till I learned about stuff. And in, in that time, I was working in private hostels in Sunderland and I noticed there was a lot of veterans that weren't getting any help at all. Uh, because people think you just go to the British League and they'll give you stuff. But if you haven't got a mobile phone, if you haven't got the money to get to Newcastle, if you haven't got the internet, fill the forms and things like that you know it's really difficult so these are a lot of the forgotten homeless uh, so I, I started uh, what I found out veterans in crisis why, why do you think there are so many veterans that are homeless well it's not in Sunderland now because <laughs> most, <laughs> I think it, it's it's a lot of things pride's a big thing you don't want to go and ask for help um, that's the the main thing that I've found however there's there's other factors like when, if you've been in the army since you were 16, you leave when you're in your 40s, you don't know about getting a house, you don't know about getting a doctor. Simple things like getting a dentist. Things you know, we take yeah. for granted, I guess, you know, as, you as just, a civvy, you, you know. When you join the forces, they sort of make you the way they want you. But when you leave, they don't make you back to a civilian. They just You just go and you've got all them still military things in you. So I've spoken to um, quite a few veterans and they say, you know, without wanting to sound too dismissive on the government, there isn't much of a transition programme no, no. afterwards. Has no. that changed at all? Well, not to my knowledge, but if you do less than six years, and I did five, you get no transition. So you've got all them people, plus you, if you get kicked out because of drugs, nothing happens. They don't even tell anybody that you've been kicked out because of drugs. So then it's the NHS's problem. But if they don't go for treatment themselves, that means they just spiral out of control. And what's the biggest thing that you see at Veterans in Crisis? What, in terms of the veterans that walk through the door that need the help? Uh, mental health. Mental, mental health. health, yeah. But mental health could be because of a few things. It's not all because of the military. It could be stuff that's happening before they join the military. It could be stuff that happens after. A lot of it's alcohol-based. I mean, I, I worked uh, for Northumbria University and I did a study. And the average time for a veteran to ask for help about alcohol is 18 years. Not the alcohol is the problem, it's the damage you've done to your body, it's a psychological damage, you know, there's a lot of other things. That. And another thing, so people think getting someone into a house when they're homeless is the hardest thing, but that's the easiest. So the the quickest we've did it is 15 minutes. So from being street homeless to a flat in 15 minutes. But what you need to do is you need to give them all the support around that. There's no point in just giving someone a house or a flat and putting them in it when it's got no furniture, it's got... They're just going to be isolated. They could be drinking and taking drugs in that flat, you know, antisocial behaviour. You need to find them somewhere and then you need to support them. So how do you support them with the men? Well, I mean, I know you provide... Actually, let's talk about the services that you provide. Yeah, uh, we, we basically... 
will help with anything, any kind of problem. Like as long as you're a veteran, as long as you're from Sunderland, will help with any problem. I'm going to ask this now. Why only if you're from Sunderland? I know I'm from Newcastle, and there's a little bit of rivalry there. So, but... well, if you think, actually, but what... did he take Geordies in? No, please don't take Geordies in. No, only from Sunderland. I, I struggle if the if they're supporting Newcastle and they're from Sunderland. But I do let them in if they've got a doctor's in Sunderland. Mm-hmm. That, that is a downside on yeah. me, me plan. So you've got to think that I started this on my own with a £10 page you go on mobile phone, nothing else. I had Greg's as my office. Oh, Greg's yeah. now. So That's there was no, the best office. There was no um, way that I could solve the world's problems, but I could mm-hmm. make a dent in helping people in Sunderland. So that's the way it started. So then we were the first people to ever have an armed forces champion in every GB surgery. So that's never happened anywhere else in the country apart from what's happened with us in Sunderland. So that sort of gives us the perimeter to say, right, if you've got a GP in Sunderland, that's them we can help. Now there's other services, not as good as us obviously, but that and send them to. Yeah. But that's yeah. how I had to work it out. I mean I've got staff now, but there's only like I think three, four people get paid. And how I was gonna say, how do you fund it all? Uh, I use my own money at the beginning. I use my own money. So you that. got so you basically just took this on yourself. You, yeah. you were already volunteering yeah, before. Yeah. yeah, I just took it on myself. I thought I would do a better job than what's happening now, and uh, I just do it myself. And then I designed these t-shirts and sold them, and that's where the money come from. Now that takes a lot of bo- bollocks. Sorry, it does because you'd be, you'd been through all that. You'd been through the drug abuse. You'd been through the painkillers. You're diagnosed with diagnosed with PTSD. And what, what do you reckon that turning point was for you wanting to dedicate your life to helping people? It was what my dad dying. Your dad dying. Yeah, dad, that dad was the turning him. point. That made me want to help people because before that, I was uh, more or less just wanted to make money. Didn't matter much. So if I had a quid, I wanted another quid. You know, it didn't really make any difference, whatever it was. I just always wanted to make money. and just. But after that, I'm not really asked about money, to be honest. I'm not bothered about it at all. That's why I spent my own money to get set up. That's why I worked for free for two and a half years. And so, now you're getting some funding in? Yeah, yeah, I get funding now. So the armed forces are coming in to get some money, pays for some wages. Um, we have funding from other specialist people, let's say CG in Sunderland, give us money, um, or have give us money. Um, so they are sort of like uh, health people. Um, and we have like now, I've managed to get funding to, um, to employ a business development manager so he can look for funding all the time. So we've been really lucky. You know. And what sort of services do you uh, did do you provide because you mentioned that mental health was the yeah. big the biggest thing so we have a on-site counsellor twice a week for veterans so if you came there's probably a year waiting list if you ask the nhs so if you came monday you could have a counsellor on friday uh, it's as easy as that we do counselling for families we do counselling for um kids nobody else does that um wow. we've got like um starting a smart recovery group so it's a bit like a year and we're doing yeah. still doing that um we do a lot of outdoor activities. We do a lot of dog walking, where you walk and talk about your problems. I'm trying not to laugh because you said dog. dog <laughs> so I, that's why I had to ask stay away from anyone that bites. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, then, sorry, go on. So we've got now, we've managed to buy a building. So from a £10 page, you go mobile, and now we've got a four-storey building. That was that's a, I mean, congrat, honestly, I just want to say that is one hell of an effort, like you say, from a... From a little mobile phone, from coffees, well, maybe it was a pasty or two, and Greg's passing, passing a coffee and Greg, to now a building. Yeah, so it's four stories. So downstairs is my office, and uh, we have a drop in where veterans can come in all day, 
six days a week. They have food, they wash the clothes, get a shower and stuff like that. The next floor is an apartment where you can house up to a family of four people if they were homeless. Next floor is a therapy centre, so we do art therapy, we do Reiki, we do counselling. Um, and the next floor is a podcast studio and an IT studio. Wonderful, I'm looking forward to coming down to check out your podcast studio. Um, and where do you see the future, where do you want to take it? I mean, I'm sure people have said to you, can't you take this nationwide? Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, it, it's a lot of hard work and I also work for Sunderland University as well. So I'm a senior lecturer there and a research associate, so army times top up. Um, in the future, I, I don't want to ask people for money, so in the future, I want to be self-sustainable. So we started a renewables company. We're hoping to buy houses. Uh, if we can buy houses, the idea would be then we'll have a maintenance company, that's all veterans, who do the houses up and then one of them who needs a house gets the house and then we'll just carry that on. So you're employing veterans? Yeah, we only employ veterans, so my business, the idea of being, unless you're a support staff, like as in the office, every other person is being a client. So other than me, in the whole place, they've all got to be veterans and all got to be clients. So then they've been the client, volunteer, part-time and full-time. And Joe, if there's anybody that's watching as a sort of final word and they are suffering out there and they're in the Sunderland area, <laughs> they're, they're in the Sunderland area and they're GP, what, what, what would you say? To Just them? come along, come along and visit Veterans in Crisis and we'll help you with anything you need. But if you're not in the Sunderland area, the, for mental health, you can contact Up Courage. For any other thing for in your area, there's a thing called the Veterans Gateway. All you have to do is type that in Google. When it comes up, put your postcode in and all the services where you live will be on. And if you don't have a postcode because you're homeless, okay. you can use your, if you have, if you haven't got a postcode, you can use your doctors. So your doctor, you can do everything from your doctors. Your doctors would let you get your letters delivered. Your doctors would let you sign on at the door and stuff, and you could use that as an address. True. I mean, what an amazing, amazing journey that you've had. Um, what I mean, what what sort of what do you want to leave? What's your like, sort of legacy to this? All of this. To be honest, I'm quite happy in my life. To be honest. <laughs> I didn't think I'd get past 25, so I'm 51 oh now, so gosh. I think that's about it. Oh, oh. I'm just happy in my life. Well, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on this show. I've really enjoyed having a Mackham in my home. I can't believe I'm saying that. Um, and I just want to say, um, from, from my heart, thank you for everything. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your service now and what you're doing and how you're helping the community. Thank you for inviting us down. It's been a pleasure. Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, there's a new interview out every Monday. So hit subscribe and like and you'll get it straight into your inbox.